Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The top-line budget agreement Congress worked out last weekend doesn't mean the work is done. Members still have to work out the agency-by-agency allocations and whatever policy riders each side can stomach. We get the industry view from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, just when you think things are hopeless and we're here for a shutdown or a rest of our lives CR, well, something breaks. So what's the industry view of this? Well, Tom, yeah, the industry view is uh, there's a huge amount of uncertainty here, right? This deal that was announced on Sunday, and and we've seen two sides of it. We've seen the statement from Speaker Johnson on the House Republican side, where he's put out his letter to colleagues. Then we've seen the statement from uh, Senate Majority Majority Leader Schumer and uh, and House Minority Leader Jeffries, uh, which casts a different light on the nature of the deal. But it is an essential first step. Right. Because if you don't have agreement on top line funding, you can't do any of the other elements that come into play. So contractors are at least glad to see some uh, agreement on what the numbers look like. So we can go into those numbers a little bit and then into the next steps. But that final top line number that they did agree to is derived at some loose degree from what it is that the administration submitted for a 2024 budget. So it's not as if HHS is going to get a. $50 $50 billion variance or anything. No, that's probably true. And and uh, and within it, so, you know, the, the original Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was passed late May and the president signed on June the 3rd, that's the one, it didn't avoid a shutdown. What it avoided was default on national debt, right, which is far more traumatic to the global economy than a, than a government shutdown would be. Um, that had a cap of $886 billion for defense, $704 billion for civilian agencies. But then there were these side deals to add about another $69 billion to the civilian agencies that would get them back up to not really what the president had requested, but well above uh, what they had for FY23. The real problem, though, as you alluded to, is how do you break this down agency by agency? The Fiscal Responsibility Act didn't do that. Each House of Congress uh, did their own from from an appropriations point of view, but it didn't include all of the side deals. And now they've got to go back and rework these, especially on the House side. And they don't have much time. I mean, Tom, you know, between the 9th of January uh, today and the 19th of January, when uh, the first four bills come due or we have a shutdown, um, that's only a handful of legislative days. And there's an awful lot of work to be done. So this is this is where contractors have to be paying close attention. All right. So you have outlined possible paths forward if Congress would listen to David Berteau and others that have a rational view of the way things ought to work in the world. And uh, let's go through some of those. Your show gives us the opportunity for at least somebody to hear us, whether they listen or not, that remains to be seen. But you're right. There are really four possible paths forward. I mean, the easiest one or the one that is most consistent with what regular order would be is the appropriators will rewrite all 12 bills or at least the four that are due on January 19th and they'll pass Congress and they would be signed by the president before we get to that shutdown deadline. This is really hard. Uh, not only is it hard to do from a legislating point of view, but on the House side, uh, you know, the House uh, uh, Freedom Caucus has already indicated they're going to be opposed to this. They run the Rules Committee. You cannot get a rule through without Democratic votes. Uh, so it either has to be under suspension of the rules or or Democrats will have to vote for the rule uh, in the committee. Um, and of course, then there's always the possibility of that single member proposing a motion to vacate the speakership, uh, which we've run into. So there's some 
sort of bureaucratic hurdles, legislative bureaucratic hurdles along the way here. But that's one path forward. You could actually implement the deal through full year appropriations. The second path forward is you could, in fact, make enough progress that you'd say, okay, now we know what the deal looks like. Let's just do a full year continuing resolution, which is almost like a full year appropriations. It would just be one bill instead of 12 separate bills. Yeah, that's a Um, good point. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. This does not the deal that is does not rule out a CR for the rest of the year. It, it, it does not. And, and you know, the speaker, Speaker Johnson, has stated publicly that that he does not intend to bring a short term CR to the House floor for a vote. He did not say he would not bring a full year CR to the House floor for a vote. So that is a second path forward. The third path forward, of course, would be a short term CR that would just buy you time to continue implementing the deal. Of course, when the speaker says he's not going to bring such a bill to, to the floor for a vote, that makes it a little hard for that option to, to, to occur. It could be done under a discharge petition. There is a ripe discharge petition that could be activated for this, although it would still take about seven legislative days. So it has to be activated really soon. And of course, the fourth path forward, and perhaps the most likely given the time constraints here, is we will have a partial government shutdown at midnight on January 19th. Um, and there are some real implications for that. It's not only the four agencies covered by the appropriations bills, but there are three other cabinet departments, part of which would shut down and part of which would remain open. A very complicated procedure for the government to operate in. Yeah, imagine what that would do to telework policy if some of the people aren't working at all. <laughs> no, no kidding. So within DOD, you have all the military construction and family housing and real property maintenance would be suspended, but the rest of DOD would keep operating. In HHS, you would have the Food and Drug Administration suspended because that's under the agricultural appropriations bills, but the rest of health and human services would continue to operate. And under energy, all of energy would shut down except for the part of energy on the nuclear uh, side, the NNSA side, which would remain open and continue to operate. No guidance, as far as we know, has been issued either by these agencies or from OMB as to how they're going to do that. So that's one of the important things that contractors need to look at. There are a couple of others. Well, just on that point alone, the uncertainty that contractors feel then would be derived from the uncertainty that agency buyers must feel because they don't know when or how much money they're going to get. And so that tends to make them very conservative on commitments. You are absolutely right, Tom. Every agency, every program doesn't know, A, are we going to keep going or not? B, at what funding level? And C, when, right? And so the natural tendency, as you indicate, is If I don't know what's going to happen, if I don't know how much money I'm going to have, if I don't know when I'm going to get it, I'm not going to do very much right now because I want to wait and see what comes on. So the very first thing contractors have to do is be communicating very carefully with their government customers on what those expectations or possibilities are. The second thing that contractors have to do, is they've really got to prepare for all four of those paths forward that I have uh, laid out there because you might get money, you might get it soon, you might get it later, you might not get it at all, you might have a shutdown and and we'll have to see how this plays out. I haven't even mentioned the further complicating uh, dynamic here, which is the debate over the supplemental for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and the border, uh, which is hanging in the balance as well and has some very real near-term implications, both for the government agencies and for contractors themselves. Yes, because in that supplemental is a lot of military spending. A lot of military spending, and much of it is to replenish the supplies and the stockpiles of munitions and weapon systems uh, that have been drawn down from those stockpiles over time, um, both for Ukraine and and in recent months uh, for Israel itself. And 
by the way, the Taiwan election uh, results loom large here as well, because we're going to see what the Chinese reaction is uh, to the results of yesterday's elections when we get the final poll poll numbers in. Sure. But what, what we need then are more shell companies to be created. That is howitzer shell companies. Well, uh, we, we a little known fact that we actually reduced uh, the capacity that we had to produce these munitions, particularly 155 millimeter shells, as part of the base closures back in 2005, uh, because, of course, at that point, we didn't see uh, what was coming and, and what we see now in, in 2024. Um, it just goes to show that uh, it, the government needs to rely on its contractors to be able to shift and, and surge when necessary. But the government's responsibility for creating both the requirements for that surge and the funding capacity for it. Uh, we'll see more of that later this week. DOD is going to release its first ever uh, industrial-based strategy. We're looking forward to seeing what that is, and we'll be happy to talk with you further about that on a later show. All right. In the meantime, David Berto is still president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, a steady voice through all of this. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom, and uh, let's see how this unfolds over the next few days. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, 
including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, 
She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.